Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 7 Living with the Lombards. In the last episode, we left the Lombards as they were settling in to their new home in Italy. And they had already been through a couple of kings, starting with Alboin, who had led their descent into the land, and then doing away quickly with his successor, Clef, which has brought us up to the year 574. At this point, the dukes could not agree on a new king, so they thought they would do without for a while, and so started the ten-year interregnum from 574 to 584, in which the dukes controlled the scene. Now, some historians say that the word interregnum is not exactly correct, because it would indicate a period between two reigns, and since we can't really talk of a stable reign before and after the period of the dukes, it would not be 100% correct. But anyway, there was a period of interim, let's say. There were 35 of these dukes in all, among which some of the most important were the dukes of Pavia, Brescia, Bergamo, Trento and Friuli. And as we'll see, down south we had the dukes of Spoleto and Benevento off doing their own thing. This was not a happy period for the local population, but for a change, those who suffered most were the top level of society. The old nobility had their lands taken away and were often killed. A systematic elimination that had started under Clef. Those remaining were excluded from power since the Lombards did not use them in the local administration as the Goths had done. Things for the smaller landowners weren't quite as bad if they had been able to survive the violence of the conquest at least. They settled back down under the new rulers with the only real change that they no longer had to pay the heavy Byzantine taxes. So, they were actually a little better off. They were generally strange creatures in the eyes of the new Germanic overlords. Indeed, to Lombard eyes, if you were not a slave, you were a warrior. So, these non-fighting free men were a bit of a strange anomaly in their view of the social structure. Things for the church and clergy did not go well at all, with many churches being pillaged and destroyed, and many priests and bishops killed. This was not due to any particular religious intolerance of the Aryan or sometimes pagan Lombards towards the Catholic Church, but a simple good old raiding and pillaging. Italian historian and writer Indro Montanelli points out that religious intolerance is a luxury that only settled peoples can allow themselves, and the Lombards were not quite there yet. It is at the start of this period that the Byzantines saw a chance at taking advantage of the situation, and in the year 565, the new emperor sent a man called Baduarius to Italy to be installed as the new exarch, the term that was now being used to indicate the Byzantine ruler in Italy. He ruled over an area known as the Exarchate. If you Google the Exarchate of Italy, you can get a good idea 
of the confusing patchwork that was the Italian peninsula, divided up between the Lombards and the Empire, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. The interregnum lasted ten years, and that is when the Franks started to peep over the Alps to see if anything interesting was going on down there. That was enough to convince the divided dukes that they would need a unifying presence to fight off any external threats, as well as dealing with the Byzantine enclaves still hanging around the country. So, in the year 584, the son of King Clef, Autari or Autari, was elected king of the Longbards and given the title of Flavius to make him sound a bit more regal and empire-like. And the title stuck from then on. They also realised that a king can't get very far without cash. So all the supporting dukes donated half of their belongings to the new king. All of those, that is, who weren't on the Byzantine payroll. The first task of King Autry was to deal with the rebel dukes who were not in line with the idea of going back to a king, in particular the dukes of Treviso, Verona and Bergamo, Trento and Cividale, and he did a pretty good job with a mix of military force in some cases and a bit of well-placed cash in others, which was a lot simpler. Quick digression here, I obviously don't expect you to remember which dukes of which cities were on which side at what time. Um, Personally, I don't even remember that, and I haven't even stuck the names in, but it's important to get the general idea. There was a great level of disunity. Then, of course, there was the rather more urgent question of the Franks, whom Autori was able to fight off successfully in 585. He also had some successes against the Byzantines, taking the last stronghold in the Alps, in the Comacina island on Lake Como, and having Ewin, Duke of Trento, take Istria in the east. This forced the empire's representatives to ask for a truce with the Lombards. A few years later, in 588, the Franks attacked again and were pushed back again, but Autari realised he would have to do something more permanent and tried to create diplomatic ties with his inconvenient neighbours, with a marriage alliance but they were having none of it again. So he looked further north to try and make an alliance that could start to surround the Franks, and his gaze fell on the Duchy of Bavaria. The duke there was a man named Garibaldo, or Garibaldo, and he had a lovely daughter called Theodolinda. So our autori rushed up to have a peek at his new potential bride. But of course, he had to go and do the whole pretending not to be the king thing. It's a shame they didn't have that catfish program back then. Anyway, he presented himself to the duke, saying that King Autari had asked him to have a look at his daughter. And when she was brought out, the king in disguise gave his approval and asked the young lady to pour him a glass of wine. And when she went to hand it to him, He touched her hand. Nothing was mentioned at the time, but later. My lady, that man touched your hand. Yeah, so? He must be the king. Say what now? Only the king would dare touch your hand. 
So now everybody that touches my hand is the king. Well, no, but whatever. On his way back, Alteri was escorted to the confines of his domain. When he got there, he hurled an axe and it stuck in a tree, and he said, "Behold the strength of the king!" So that everyone realized that he was indeed King Alteri. Behold the strength of the king. So what? You're the king. I am. You couldn't have just said, "Hey, I'm the king." Maybe back at the palace. Well, I thought it would be more cool this way. Well, that floats your boat, man. Loser. What? Nothing. Have a nice trip. The bride actually made her way down to Italy sooner than expected. Indeed. When those ever-present Franks invaded Bavaria, she escaped to her future husband, along with some of her household, including her brother. The wedding was a sumptuous affair, and one of the attendees was the Duke of Turin, Agilulf. Legend has it that during the wedding he went off to a corner to have a pee, and a bolt of lightning hit a log close to where he was standing doing his business, and so. He called upon a man among his retinue that could foretell the future. I assume he'd finished what he was doing before. He told the duke that it meant that the king would be struck down, and that Agilulf would then become the husband of Theodolinda and king. From a religious point of view, Alteri's marriage to Theodolinda was an interesting step. Alteri was an Arian. And had even gone so far as to ban children in his reign from being baptized as Catholics. This was happening more and more frequently due to a growing influence on the Lombard invaders by the local religion and possibly by a lack of Arian priests. However, with the marriage to Theodolinda, the kingdom now had a Catholic queen. We'll talk a little bit more about the religious aspect in the next episode. This is because we need time to talk now about the year 590. In this year, the Franks and Byzantines got their stuff together, and launched a joint invasion of Italy, hoping to eradicate the Lombards once and for all. The Franks from the northwest were aiming for Milan, then Verona and Pavia, and they had some initial successes in the Alpine region, forcing Alteri back to Pavia. Meanwhile, the imperial forces were able to take Mantua, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Piacenza, and Modena. Seeing how the situation was developing, the dukes of Bergamo, Treviso, Parma, Reggio, and Piacenza thought it would be a good time to switch sides and rebel against the king. No help came from down south, from Spoleto, or from Benevento. Things looked pretty grim for King Alteri. And his queen. However, despite the increasing size of the alliance, the Franks, Byzantines, and rebel dukes were not able to get their stuff together well enough to deliver a decisive blow, and the Franks headed back over the Alps. At this point, Alteri took the opportunity to attempt a new diplomatic approach to the Franks, but he died quite suddenly, and nothing complicates your attempts at international diplomacy 
like your own death, makes things pretty hard. Now, the death of Altari allows us to stop and consider three important facts about the Lombard situation so far. One, there was a lack of definitive territorial unity in the peninsula, with a Lombard north and a Byzantine south if you exclude the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento in Lombard hands and Ravenna as well as some cities of the Veneto area in the north-east still in Byzantine hands. Two, there was not even total unity within the Lombards themselves with the dukes of Spoleto and Benevento as well as some in the north following their own agenda. Three, all of this meant that Italy was not a player in the Western European scene but a land ripe for conquest and plunder, and this was a crucial time for the foundation of Europe. So, now here we are, kingless again. What next? Well, Theodolinda was no helpless maiden in distress, and in the short time she had been Autori's queen, she had made herself well-liked by the Lombards, and so the Gai Rethinks, the Assembly of the Lances, granted her the right to choose her husband and the future king. Now, remember Agilulf, the Duke of Turin, from the wedding, who went to have a pee and saw the lightning? Well, he was the man she chose. She invited him down, and they met in a town called Lamello. Here, she had some wine brought. She drank from the goblet and offered the rest to him. After he had drunk, he kneeled before her and kissed her hand, and was promptly told to kiss the queen on the lips, for he would be the king. Indeed, in May of 591, he was made king by being raised up on the shield by the other dukes. Now, it is under King Agilulf and Queen Theodolinda that the Lombards got down to some more serious stuff. After all, the guy wasn't just the first little duke that came along. He was apparently a descendant of Theodoric the Great himself. One thing the king did on a symbolic level was to move the capital of the kingdom to Milan. In this way, he created a royal capital, something that was exclusive to the king. Queen Theodolinda also built up her own little power base in a city not far from Milan, Monza, and to this day you can see her image in the artwork in the cathedral of that city, as well as the Iron Crown. That sounds like it comes straight out of the Game of Thrones, does it not? It was a crown made out of a circlet of gold and jewels fitted around an iron band that was supposed to have been made from the nails of the true cross of Jesus Christ. It was used as the crown of the Lombard kings and later the emperors and kings of the Kingdom of Italy starting at the end of the 8th century. The reign of Agilulf also saw a period of relative peace with the Franks Indeed, the Lombards offered a yearly tribute that kept them free to expand and consolidate, increasing the change in Lombard society from a nomadic warrior culture to a settled people. First on the list was to defeat and execute the rebel dukes, namely those of Bergamo, Verona and Treviso. A number of cities were taken from the Byzantines, who did not have the resources to react since they were busy fighting on other fronts. Byzantium had come to realise that they could not take back the Italian peninsula from the Lombards and indeed take back and control the territory in general. 
the situation was irreversible. Therefore, they started to concentrate their attention on Ravenna and the cities around it, cutting their losses, you might say. The culmination of the struggle came at the start of the 7th century, with the Lombards taking Padova, Cremona and later Mantua. The death of the Byzantine Emperor Maurice in 602 marked the year in which the Byzantines finally and definitively gave up hope. This allows us to stop for a sec and do a little geography. I've put a map on the site with the post for episode 7, where you can see the more or less definitive division of the peninsula. You can see that, as well as the area in the northeast around Ravenna, Byzantium also controlled a strip of land connecting this area to Rome and the surrounding lands around Rome, a little blob around Naples, and the heel, which used to be called Calabria but is now actually all Puglia, and the toe, which is actually now Calabria, of the famous boot, as well as the islands of Sicily, Corsica and Sardinia. We need to bear in mind, however, that the empire only really had direct control over the Exarchate, the area around Ravenna on the top right. The southern parts and the islands were slowly breaking away, doing their own thing. Then there was Rome, and that was a whole other kettle of fish, or, as we say in Italian, un altro paio di maniche, another pair of sleeves, would you believe it? We'll talk about Rome and the religious issues next time before we see good old Agilulf off the stage and talk about the succession. For now, let's leave him there happily kinging with his queen, Theodolinda. Before we close for this episode, I'd really like to thank Muwats in Canada for the important feedback, which I'll be taking into account. Thank you very much for that. And also hello to the Discover Italian Art and Culture page, which you can find on Facebook for sharing our A History of Italy Facebook page. And also to the Comunità Italiana USA, that's the Italian community in the USA who also is sharing our content. If, like them, you want to get in touch, you can do so for any reason, comments, queries, uh, possibly not insults, please, on the uh, email address, which is hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can find links through to our Facebook page and to our YouTube channel, where you can see a couple of mini-documentaries on Italian cities. You can also, if you're feeling particularly generous, go to the donate page of the website to help support the program. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review on your favorite podcast catcher. For now, thank you very much for listening again. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. 
Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.